right, so we're starting the show with a little bit of Duke Ellington's Far East Suite. This is the first piece in the suite titled Tourist Point of View. And if you were listening closely about 30 seconds ago, you heard this really wonderful handoff of the melody from the baritone saxophone, Harry Carney, which has the melody to begin, to the tenor saxophone, Paul Gonzalez, who pretty much takes it from there for the rest of this track. Bit of a feature for Paul Gonzalez. was a junior in high school. It was either my junior year or my senior year, but I think it was junior year. I went to the uh, Massachusetts All-State Jazz Band, played in the trombone section, and our director was the Lexington High School Jazz Band director, Jeffrey Leonard, and he had us play the entire Ellington Far East Suite. And from a lens of uh, however many years, 15 plus years since that event, it ranks among my favorite music playing experiences. The music is truly incredible. And to be a teenager playing it with the best musicians who I had, the best peer musicians who I had encountered up to that time in my life was really incredible. I've lost track of almost everyone from that band. There are two exceptions people I'm still in touch with here in uh, New York City. But it was really incredible, and the experience has stuck with me in that I deeply love the recording of the Far East Suite. The music was written after the Ellington band was sent to... India, the Middle East, I believe also Japan, in the early 60s by the State Department, who at that time were sending bands such as Dizzy Gillespie's and Duke Ellington's around the globe as a, an outreach kind of thing. This is what America has to offer. Great. I mean, I think they also sent artists like Benny Goodman and probably some other people who were maybe more uh, pop artists and maybe who were also white. But it's also awesome to think of the United States government sanctioning and sending African-American jazz musicians to other parts of the world as ambassadors of our culture. 
if my memory of history is correct, the Ellington Band was called back from their trip to the East after the assassination of John F. Kennedy. But they came back and they wrote music, and they wrote music inspired by their trip and recorded it. And when I was asked by drummer Phil Kester to play in a little quartet, trombone, tuba, guitar, drums, for some reason my mind wandered to the Far East Suite and to arranging some of the pieces in the Far East Suite for that instrumentation. So I had a great time sitting down with the CD and transcribing the melodies, the arrangements of a couple of the tunes that I could strip down to that quartet instrumentation. And this was for a gig, an odd gig, an art modeling gig at the School of Visual Arts or the School for Visual Arts, SVA, down in uh, the Chelsea area of New York City. Somehow Phil has a contact there, a woman who runs a figure drawing class, and she often brings in musicians and all kinds of other people. Sometimes she brings the class out of the building to another place, but more often it sounds like she brings people into the classroom for a three-hour session where they do whatever it is that they do, in our case, play music, and they get sketched and painted and everything by the class of visual arts students. It was really fun to sit there and play all morning. We played a long time. I mean, we played it almost for three hours. Mostly we improvised, but we played a few songs too. And get drawn and see what these people came up with. Uh, some very talented artists in the group. I also enjoyed hearing that the, the teacher brought in a chef recently and had the chef prepare a whole bunch of food during the class while being sketched. Basically prepared a meal, which then all the students ate at the end. That was probably pretty memorable and enjoyable for the students. And I hope our music resonated well with them. Um, in addition to these Ellington things I transcribed, which I actually don't remember us actually playing. You might have to get to those the next time. Something a little bit simpler I brought in, also from the Far East. Composer Ziad Rabani. Lebanese composer, one of the Rabani brothers who came to notoriety there for either their writing or their performing. I don't know much about them, but during a period of time, a number of years ago when I was getting a lot of CDs out of the library, things to check out, props to the library system, 
I got his CD Bill Afra and listened to it with some regularity to this day. Many great melodies on it. The album is sort of a medley. And what you're hearing in the background is my old band Kabluna's version of the song that I actually think I played on the podcast a couple of months ago. So I'm not going to play the Ziad Ravani version, but it's from a great CD called Bill Afro. That's the way April began. Welcome to the April 2014 edition of the Escape from Society podcast. I'm looking at April on the calendar now that we've flipped over to May, seeing what was there what we're going to talk about in this episode. I have a very nice calendar that I've had for many years, The Wooden Boats Calendar by Benjamin Mendlowitz. But I can read to you. Painted white all over and showing her age, this was a boat most would have dismissed before Doug Hyland got hold of her and, through gradual repair and an attractive new color scheme, created a head-turner. And it goes on like this. Nice little picture of a guy on a small boat in a little inlet or river of some kind. Beautiful little picture there. Nice calendar. I'm sure you find that very interesting. So, following up the SVA gig, which was on a Friday morning, was a Saturday evening back-to-back for me. Uh, You heard last month of a night where I had to play three gigs back to back to back. That wasn't very much fun. This was a little more fun. Started with a wedding in the evening in Long Island City. I am a lover of the Queen's gig and this did not disappoint. It was with Tin Pan. It was in a very nice room in Long Island City in an industrial building converted called the Metropolitan Room I believe and the the wedding crowd, all the invitees definitely got the memo this was a kind of dress like the 20s or something type of wedding and people rose to the occasion they looked fabulous The band was hired to play a particular song as the processional, a particular song as the recessional, and then a normal set of our own choosing. It seemed like the bride's father maybe hired us because he was way into the band. Fun-loving guy, dancing a little bit. We weren't playing as the dance band. We were sort of playing during dinner. It was a very brief ceremony. Everybody was ready to party, eat, drink, all that. The 
the processional I'm going to talk about a little bit. It's the song The Glory of Love. Now, in February, I think, I saw the movie Guess Who's Coming to Dinner for the first time. Sidney Poitier, Catherine Hepburn. Good movie. Enjoyed it. The music, it's one of these movies from the 60s that insisted on having a theme song. And the theme song is this glory of love song. And they just, it plays for the opening credits and comes back at several times during the movie as part of the underscoring or transition between scenes or whatever. So overdone and such an annoying arrangement featured in that movie really turned me off of the song. And it turned out that that was the song we're supposed to play for the processional. So, okay, I don't care. It's, you know, I'm getting paid to do this gig. I'll play the song. I I don't care. But our reference recording was Otis Redding's version, which is entirely different, although recorded within a year of the release of that movie. So I, I think it was probably recorded because the song was popular at the time. That's my guess. And you're hearing the recording now. It's very Otis. It's a weird music video where he's singing outside and he's not lip syncing. There's no band. The band was probably recorded in a studio, but he's outdoors singing, not into a microphone, so there must be a boom outside of the shot picking up his voice. There are weird shots of geese during the bridge. It's a really weird video. And the recording is also kind of strange because the band switches from a triple meter to a duple meter. I mean like 6-8 or 12-8, whatever you want to call the triple meter, to 4-4 towards the end. And I'll shut up here while that section of the song plays so you get a sense of the groove. It's a very interesting metric modulation. God bless Otis Redding. Cassidy Holden, who I had not met before, was playing bass on that gig with Tim Pan, and he was slamming. That was really nice. Um, And as soon as we finished, I held a cab outside and rode down to Bar Chord in Ditmas Park. Very far away, but it was fast. It got me there in about 20 minutes, which was perfect because I arrived in time to begin the set at Bar Chord with the Dirty Water Dogs 
did a couple of sets of awesome Cajun feeling, very much less Cajun feeling. Now, I've sat in with the Dirty Water Dogs a number of times, and always there's been an accordion in the band. On this gig, Neil, the accordion player, couldn't be there, and so I was actually on the gig officially, not just sitting in, and sort of in the place of Neil. So the guitar player and the drummer wound up taking the lead vocals and everything in Neil, the accordion player's absence. And we did tunes I know, we did tunes I don't know. It's Dirty Water Dogs are a great kind of feel-good music band, if you know what I mean, in the history of like an NRBQ type of thing. NRBQ is a band I love, and Dirty Water Dogs covers some NRBQ songs. Here's one I'm going to shut up and let you listen to it. We did it that night. Bruce, the drummer, sings this song in the band. Bruce had gotten back from Ecuador that morning and didn't know about the gig. It was an overnight flight. He was exhausted. He was going to turn in at like 8 o'clock. And before he went to bed, he decided to check his email. He checked his email and he was like, oh shit, I have a gig tonight. Guess I'm gonna stay up. And he powered through and that was pretty funny. Anyway, here's the NRBQ version of the song. It's awesome. Ooh. 
always cool to hear an example of a song that is a blues, but not just a blues. That's a song that has sort of an A-B form in which the B is a blues, 12-bar blues, but it has this other thing, which is an A. Cool song. Anyways, these uh, gigs, the three that I just talked about, they all happened in the first week of the month, and as I gaze at my wonderful wooden boats calendar, there's basically a bunch of blank space, a little period of inactivity in which I watched a lot of baseball because the baseball season began. That felt awesome. I'm very excited about baseball. Also took a little trip up to Boston for a couple of days and made it back for a gig on the 17th with the singer slash rapper and songwriter Baloji. Baloji, born in the Democratic Republic of Congo, residing in or just outside of Brussels in Belgium, has a killer band. These guys are awesome. They are the real deal. And I love African music and have had painfully few opportunities to play with African musicians over the years. The stuff that Baloji does is, I would say, similar mostly to East African music, the way the guitar is and the way some of the rhythms are, but it's not entirely that. There's some West African stuff and the band, the guitarist, the drummer, the bass player, they were just, they were killing. It was such a pleasure to work with these guys. They're on tour in the United States right now. This was the first show of a short tour that they're doing. They've been here several times before and they just added a horn section to the New York show, which was at the Schimmel Center at Pace University. Tickets were $35 and not very many people came. It was kind of weird. I wonder if this show had been at like the knitting factory for $10, if the room would have been totally full. Being in a theater and expensive, it was like attracting a different crowd. It was at 7.30 in the evening. Uh, one of those booking, promoting things that I never get too much information about. Who makes those decisions? Whoever made them was counting on a certain thing and maybe what they expected to happen was what happened. Everybody who was there loved the show. Uh, I can say that with some certainty. It went really well. I enjoyed the show. Probably no less and perhaps more than most everyone in the audience. My friend Jordan put the horn section together, Jordan McLean, we'll talk about him later. And we had one rehearsal for it the day before. There were charts and most of the right stuff was on the charts, although they had to be 
edited because the band has evolved their own arrangements and things like that. And so with one rehearsal for the gig, I felt like we had some of, we had most of the stuff cleared up. And Jordan and I talked about this after the gig because we screwed up a couple of the things. We, I'm just making mistakes, no train wrecks or anything. Just making little mistakes. And it was the sort of thing where I think either the little tricky passages we should have just played 50 times at the rehearsal and not worried about anything else. Or maybe the whole thing could have just been unrehearsed and the spontaneity would have carried the day. The thing about trying to join a really tight band as a horn section is they've got stuff going on that is so complex that if you start to think about it a little bit, it'll throw you off. Or they're just on a level of being tight that is hard to integrate into in you know, playing together for two hours or whatever. All right, so the week on the calendar that is starting with the Bologi gig is pretty blacked in. There are actually 11 performances in the span of seven days. So we move on to the next day, which was Good Friday, and I got a last-minute call. Last minute being maybe Tuesday, maybe Wednesday. And call, meaning text message, possibly email. No, I think it was email. Um, to see if I was available to come on the afternoon of Good Friday down to St. Peter's Chapel. St. Paul's Chapel. St. Paul's Chapel. St. Peter's Chapel. The other chapel that... Trinity Church down on Wall Street is affiliated with. They were having a uh, children's performance on the afternoon of Good Friday, sort of commemorating the significance of Good Friday. I think there's some sort of uh, theology about the six separate weeks that led up to Good Friday or six days spread out to six weeks or something. There are these different events that can be marked. And my friends at Banana Bag and Bodice, a theater company that I've worked with, who I've also done work with at Trinity Church, did a children's program that was like, you know, kind of a Sunday school sort of thing. It's it's funny. It's like a bunch of not religiously affiliated New York theater people 
coming and working with children about a religious subject. And although I have my own personal suspicions about organized religion, I tend to see some of the negative aspects of it. I can often see the positive and the people who we work with at Trinity Church are pretty wonderful people. And that certainly includes all the children who we've worked with. And it's a nice arrangement that I think we all enjoy, not only because it's paid work and work with fun kids, but because there's an opportunity to dig into the significance of certain events, in this case, the death of Jesus Christ, that we wouldn't necessarily be approaching in our own work, given the infinite other opportunities of things to uh, make art about. Anyways, this particular gig at Trinity Church was the culmination of the little Sunday school uh, semester that Banana Bag and Bodice had been running. And they got a little bit of money in the budget to include some music for the show. They had already been using a, um, a song called Field of Diamonds in the Sky, the Johnny Cash version with the children. So the kids knew how to sing that. And Ezra Gale, bassist, and I were hired to come play that song with the children at a certain point in the show. The show was like 10 minutes long, if that. But also to make music in other parts of the show to kind of accent it. And I brought the trombone, I brought the guitar, we did the Johnny Cash song, which was nice. We did some other little music that we chose, which was also fun to play. It was chill. There were a lot of tourists there who come into that chapel because tourists absolutely seem to love Lower Manhattan right now. They are so into coming to the 9-11 World Trade Center stuff. And this chapel is the 9-11 chapel where there's memorial stuff. And I mean, you see the, the World Trade Center site is just down the street. So it's in plain view and the blah, blah, blah. Um, so the tourists that happen to be there at, you know, 2 p.m. on this on Good Friday were treated to this nice little performance where the children walked around and handed them bread and raised up these uh, cut out painted things that they had made and we played the music and everybody seemed to have a nice little time. The kids are pretty cool.
bet you're going fishing all of the time. Baby, going fishing too. Bet your life, your sweet wife is going to catch more fish than you. Many fish bites if you got good bait. But here's a little tip that I would like to relate. With my pole and my line, I'm a going fishing. Yes, I'm going fishing. And my baby going fishing too. I went on down my favorite fishing hole, baby, call myself a pole line. That night, I shifted gears entirely, but did bring Ezra and Jason with me to an adult activity, a skeletons show at Transpicos. You heard all about skeletons last month. No more about skeletons right now, but Transpicos was formerly the silent barn and skeletons are the guys who first moved into that space and turned it into a performance venue so it's a little bit of a coming home but it was a little bit of a coming home to an empty house there was like nobody at this show maybe maybe there were 10 people there pretty dead which was kind of disappointing but in contrast to the roulette show that we had played a month earlier it was a uh, it was sort of a more familiar venue for skeletons you know this is a DIY rock venue as opposed to a uh, big performance hall type of space that roulette is and although as a horn player, that usually means, and in this case did mean, no monitor, blow your face off, hope you have a good time. Uh, there's still something exciting and fun about doing it that way. We had the three-piece horn section. Greg, our drummer, was sick. He puked right before we went on. You'd have never known it from the way he played, although he looked awful. It's kind of funny when when musicians and drummers, I've seen this in drummers like a bunch of times, they get really sick, they're in terrible shape, and they go out and just kick ass on the drums. It's maybe this weird drummer thing. Maybe every drummer has gone through this, but they are able to push themselves. That was the Skeletons show and the conclusion of Good Friday. Good Friday, as I found out this year, is followed by Holy Saturday. Holy Saturday is the day that Christ is dead. And he's just dead. That's, that's all. But there is a significance to the holiday. And to get back to Jordan McLean, my trumpet playing friend who set up the horn section for the Bologi gig he arranged with a choreographer friend of his Jacob a Holy Saturday performance of some dance ballet type of dance if not straight ballet um, with some renaissance music Jeswaldo specifically the, compo the uh, composer Jeswaldo Jeswaldo wrote something called the Responsorials, which was written for Holy Saturday 
vocal music, but Jordan arranged these vocal pieces for one soprano voice, three strings, and five brass. So we didn't have much of a rehearsal. We rehearsed before the gig and played them in a church in Williamsburg. Not an official church event. I think it might have been a church space rental type of thing, but it did have the religious significance of being Holy Saturday and music composed for Holy Saturday. And it was very nice. It was also in the evening, sort of at sunset. Jordan and I brought our baseball gloves and had a catch outside on the sidewalk after sound check. And it was one of those evenings full of luck. It turned out that this church was right around the corner from our friend Jean Ann's house. We went over to Jean Ann's. She was home. Who's home on a Saturday? Some people are. It's cool to be home on a Saturday. But it's not common that you just like happen to be at your friend's house and they happen to be home and ready to hang out. And then your friend Steve Wood happens to be playing in the restaurant downstairs. And then you can hang out with Steve too. It was kind of a good luck night. The weather was really nice. The music was nice. And when I woke up the next morning, it was Easter. And tonight we got a special guest, all the way from way up high. I can't even believe he's here tonight. We got Jesus Christ in the house. Jesus Christ! Where are you, Jesus? Jesus is here. Bring it on, Jesus. Jesus Christ. Hey, thanks, Kevin. Hey, thanks, guys. Hey, you're great. How about giving it up for the band, huh? Yeah. All right, you got to make us feel good, ladies and gentlemen, you know, because we feel good up here, and we want you to feel good. You know, there's something I'm feeling tonight. I'm feeling proud. Okay, I'm feeling really proud. I'm feeling proud of, of you. Feeling proud of all of you because you know what? Because I'm proud. I'm proud that you've come here tonight to make yourselves uh, better people. You know, I had a little reputation a couple thousand years ago. I could turn uh, water into wine, they say. Well, it's true. You know, I can turn loaves into fishes and that's what we're gonna do here tonight, folks. You guys are the loaves and I'm gonna turn you into fishes, all right? We're gonna turn you into fishes tonight with the power of this music. You're go Thank you very much. Hey, how about giving it up for, for me and the band, yeah? And I was headed That's back downtown to Trinity Church and St. Paul's slash Peter's, whichever it's called. I don't know why I can't Kevin remember. Jay. Chapel some words for an Easter morning of three things to play. The first was during the service of bring your family, bring the children, let's have a nice time, let's celebrate Easter, let's get everybody dressed up and have a good time and then have an egg hunt in the churchyard, which is, you know, a cemetery. Um... I played some trombone along with 
a recitation by this actress, Christine, who is, she also sings in the choir there. And so she recited this text about what happened at Easter, sort of, you know, in the children's storybook type of, of style. And I played the trombone uh, basically in an improvised way around the theme of this one particular hymn that the congregation sang at the end of the story. But it was something that was kind of fun. I did a little, you know, text painting kind of stuff for the trombone. That that was that was kind of neat. And then I dashed outside where the sun was coming out and starting to warm up the cold earth and joined Ezra, who you just met, and Brian McCorkle, another banana bag and bodice associate, for a little trio set during the Easter egg hunt slash post service cookies, you know, coffee and cookies kind of thing. So all these kids are tearing through the graves, finding these, uh, oh God, Lisa told me how many Easter eggs she had stuffed. I mean, she closes her eyes at night and just sees Easter eggs because she was putting one jelly bean inside every Easter egg, and it was like 15,000 Easter eggs or something. That kept the kids busy for, you know, 10 minutes. But we were, we had a PA. I had the guitar. Ezra played bass. Brian brought his keyboard. And we were free to play whatever we chose for an hour. So went back into the Otis Redding bag, some Taj Mahal songs that I know I was mostly singing. It felt good to be playing happy music for happy people on a beautiful morning outdoors under a magnolia tree. When we finished, we grabbed some of the pastries that were left and were chauffeured in this little pickup truck. Ezra rode country style in the pickup bed with his bass. Don't see that in New York too often. Don't know how we really got away with it considering how many damn police are down in Lower Manhattan. But we drove, you know, six blocks over to Trinity Church and then played in that churchyard after their service. We did some of the same repertoire, but with a drummer added. So it was more fully realized. And I was able to play a little bit more trombone. We were playing Sweet Georgia Brown, which some of you know as the Harlem Globetrotters song. Uh, and after the trombone solo, there was someone rapping somehow. Like, where is that coming from? And one of the reverends, who is a Jamaican guy, uh, had gone over to the sound technicians and been like, hey, plug me in a microphone. And they plugged in a mic for him, and he waited until the trombone solo was over and the top of the form. He, he definitely had an acute sense of the form of the song and the rhythm of the song. He picked this song specifically. And then he just went for four or five minutes on this freestyle that was really fun. Got everybody going. I think he was saying 
some kind of Easter related stuff, but you know, mainly just spitting rhymes and uh, being kind of fun and like shaking his uh, boiler a little bit. He helped us win over the crowd, but I think we had them win over. We played some J.J. Kale. The song you're hearing here is a J.J. Kale song from the record Oki, which I discovered like a week before this gig and just absolutely fallen in love with and singled out this tune as one that almost sounds like a down by the riverside or this little light of mine kind of That was a that was a fun afternoon, I gotta tell you. After many years of being a brass player, not really cognizant or with it enough to get himself a good Easter gig, I was happy to have a sweet Easter gig this year that was not even... I mean, I did the brass thing, and that was like a creative Gesualdo playing Holy Saturday thing. And then on Easter, I did the set of music that I chose Otis Redding songs and like whatever I wanted to do and felt really good about it of course it is hard for me to always feel good about waking up at probably 6 o'clock or 6.30 whenever I got up that morning so I went home and chilled out I watched the Mets Mets were on TV ideal let's chill out in the afternoon Sun Sunday activity and then I was able to go down to the Douglas Street Music Collective that night for a night of improvised music that Michael Evans put together in honor of the percussionist Andrea Santazzo being in town and I won't list everybody who played it was seven or eight improvisers some of who I already knew some I didn't and we broke down and played for close to three hours in groups as small as two and as large as everybody which was maybe seven and there was a lot of really nice stuff a uh, uh, memory I can single out is trumpeter Brian Groder playing a duet with with Andrea Santazzo and managing to play the blues without playing the blues at all. One of those abstractions that you can get in any art form where on the how can I say this? On the surface what you're hearing or seeing is not in this case the blues you're not playing a blues progression you're not playing a blues scale you're not really playing blues rhythm but beneath the surface the the undertone the overall effect is of the blues 
great, great example of abstraction, what they were doing in that moment. And abstraction in general, if, if I have just defined it as something that you can't really describe representing something that you are familiar with and can feel, man, what brilliance, what brilliance is abstraction? Let's rifle through the next three days. If on your scorecard you've read all these gigs over the weekend, indeed the following week, with this brilliant weather, resulted in some tin pan busking out in Central Park. Monday morning, we were out there, quartet, regular spot in Central Park. Had a great morning. Brought in ton of money was fun to reunite and play together I think Tin Pan had maybe played one day so far so far in 2014 and this is April 21st the weather has been so uncooperative so we were out there on Monday we did great we were out there on Tuesday which is not even a typical tin pan day also did well Wednesday the weather started to backslide and it, I have a feeling it's just going to keep doing this maybe it'll stop eventually but it was really windy and kind of cold and maybe it wound up being sort of below our stated threshold of 52 degrees factor in the wind chill it's probably colder than that we went out there anyways and still had a successful day. Kept ourselves entertained. The, the weather sort of, I don't know, maybe broke up the sameness that that gig can take on going out day after day and playing the same extensive list of tunes. The list is the set list is extensive enough that we can play three sets no problem not repeating a song and then go back tomorrow and still have some stuff to do but it's the same basic songs day to day and so if you get a day that's like kind of cold and windy and miserable it's like whoa well this is different and uh, you I, we wound up inventing some good physical comedy on that day to get by and the money was still all right thursday however was more of the same and we didn't go out there it might have ended up being colder or maybe it was just like all right 
you know, enough of those. But we got in three solid park hits, and those felt good. Jordan McLean, who I spent, what, three nights out of the month on stage with. Three? Yeah, three. Um, the Bologi gig, the Jeswaldo Holy Saturday thing I mentioned, and Jordan's own 40th birthday party extravaganza at the Gershwin Hotel, where we reprised two of the Jeswaldo responsorials and also a brass quintet um, Machot piece, some old, uh, also some old Renaissance music. And this is a band, this brass quintet, a band that Jordan has in mind called Breath for Five Voices. Perhaps a play on the Herzog film death for five voices I don't know I haven't asked him about that but Jordan I gotta say I think we must have first encountered each other backstage at a festival in Saint-Nazaire France where Nervous Cabaret and Antibalas were playing together and I also saw Antibalas in Paris a either a few days before that or a few days after that. But I doubt Jordan and I actually met because I certainly had no recollection of him when we were introduced producing Cogglenocked, which was a first an evening-length performance and then a tour organized by Steve Cooper and Sam Swerda, now seen as Cloud Becomes Your Hand, an awesome band. Uh, an evening, an evening and tour of uh, the music of Mauricio Coggle, Argentinian-born German 20th century composer, name-checked in the liner notes of the Freak Out record by Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention and known as a sort of bizarre theatrical composer. The thing about Coggle, and I certainly know very little about him, all things considered, he wrote these theatrical kind of pieces that played with classical music performance practice in interesting ways, 
such as one that the Oberlin Contemporary Music Ensemble did while I was there, where the composer feigns a heart attack in the middle of the piece. He's up there waving his arms, and then he collapses. The orchestra grinds to a halt, and no one really knows what to do. And they kind of check him out, and they kind of whatever. Stuff like that, where it's it's a typical classical music type of performance, and then something weird happens. On the Kogelnock tour, we did a piece called Con Voce that I really liked, which is three musicians come out and bring their instruments and proceed to mime playing the instruments while vocalizing the sounds that would be coming out due to those motions. You know, there are some little pieces of music written out and so uh, as the trombonist I would go and move the slide in and out accordingly etc anyways I don't want to talk about Coggle I want to talk about Jordan McLean Jordan is a true artist he plays the trumpet he composes and arranges music and Antibalas Afrobeat Orchestra like I just mentioned, is a very successful band that Jordan co-founded years ago in New York City to play the music of Fela Kuti, Afrobeat pioneer, and I would say Antibalas should get a lot of credit as sort of neo-Afrobeat pioneers. Um... a wave of bands that has called attention to the Afrobeat originators and in many cases innovated new aspects to the music and in some cases just played as a repertoire band. Antibalas is really fun and became the uh, sort of house band for the Fela show that went to Broadway and toured all over the world and Jordan did some arranging on that blah 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 uh don't put Jordan in the Afrobeat box just when you hear the Fela and the Beloji thing because he's a very thoughtful and creative musician who is very at home in the improvised music world. He has a long-running partnership with percussionist Amir Ziv. Ziv? I don't know Amir that well that I know the pronunciation of his name. My apologies. Jordan and Amir have founded a record label called System Dialing Records. One release of theirs was a band called Butterfly Star Power, which is a punk band featuring an eight-ish year old singer. And when I saw the band play, it really drove home the fact that every punk 
band's singer wishes to be as free as an eight-year-old is. The girl who fronts this band was so into it and so aloof at the same time. I mean, she lay down on her back to sing one song and just uh, check out Butterfly Star Power. Uh, do do that much. Look into them. Um, Jordan and Amir are performing as a duo now on a very high level as in a in a sort of hybrid composed improvised form I did not speak to them about the way their pieces were constructed but at the Jordan McLean birthday spectacular variety show at the Gershwin Hotel Jordan and Amir did a duo set and they played several pieces trumpet and percussion that had compositional ideas unifying bring together uh, you know certain melodies or rhythmic or timbral ideas but progressing in a way that is that is seen and felt typically in improvised music it was it was one of those brilliant blends of composition and improvisation I want to get out of the way a little bit and let Jordan's music, which you're hearing, speak for him a little bit. Jordan's the kind of guy, he has a mantra of saying yes, which I'm sure has gotten him into trouble over the years and gotten him into situations that he preferred not to be in. That happens to everyone. But his mantra is to say yes, and when I told him I was doing this podcast and I would maybe spotlight him a little bit since we had done a bunch of work together this month, he said yes and sent me a bunch of recordings, uh, all of which I'm ashamed I didn't already have because they're awesome. So let's listen to Jordan a little bit. This is going to bring you into his world.
bass trombone I was playing in Jordan's Breath for Five Voices. If all goes according to the plan, you'll be hearing more from us in the fall. Forming a band is a weird thing to do. This is an instance where Jordan is forming the band. It's basically his thing. Although it's not really his music, it's his arrangements of Renaissance music. It's not a thing where the people are coming to get... Like when I think about uh, bands like Starring and Kabluna and Nervous Cabaret and Johnny Society and other, other bands that I've been in where... The pieces came together very organically, often a process of addition and subtraction. People joining the band as it it crystallized or leaving the band as it went into a new direction or people got busy. And the idea of having to leave a band because you're busy means that the band requires a certain amount of commitment that it can't be, oh yeah, I'll sub this gig. That's a real difference between a band and a project. Maybe I can draw that distinction. A project being something that, oh yeah, this is it's not really defined, it's kind of workshoppy. If uh, I can't do it, like I can call some other trombone player who can do it in my place type of thing. Whereas a band is yeah, if Matt can't be there, then we can't do the gig because it's a band all for one, one for all type of thing. Maybe that's a distinction worth making. And so I don't know exactly what Jordan's intention is of forming a band. Uh, I like the idea of there being a band that plays Renaissance music, not an ensemble or something that can be freelanced. But the reality of New York and people who are in this circle of brass musicians who are doing a million things, it probably is going to be more of a roster of musicians who can come together and play this stuff. I don't really know. Forming a band is weird. 
people ask me sometimes how many bands I'm in, and I don't know how to answer. Am I in one band, or are they just a band that I play with? Is my own band really a band, or is it just a project? Speaking of, we had an Escape from Society gig. And that's the thing. Are we a band or a project? I don't know. Again, we had Austin Vaughn on drums, subbing for Ian Antonio. But Kyle Forrester was back, and he played bass on the gig, and I played guitar. And Matt Nelson was there on the saxophone. The bass and guitar thing... Since I had played the last Escape from Society gig on bass and really liked it, I thought I would do that again. But we didn't end up having time to rehearse, and Kyle's played this stuff on bass and hasn't played it all on guitar. I wound up just playing guitar again. And the stupid venue had ground problems with their electricity. I'm not an electrician. I should be able to understand this kind of stuff better, but I still know very little about grounding. And the few times that I've run into this particular problem have just been frustrating because I don't know what to do about it or if anything can be done about it. But it is the problem that there's a grounding issue and the vocal microphone will shock whoever is playing the electric instrument, in my case, guitar, that's somehow running through the same electric circuit or whatever. The body creates the circuit. I don't know what. So, you know, here I am recording this podcast with my mouth right next to the microphone, being comfortable and, you know, moving around and blah, blah, blah. If I get, if I get too close to it, blah, 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 you'll get all my explosives. I don't want that. But I don't have to worry about getting shocked by the microphone. And in the and there's no band all around me making a huge racket that I have to try to compete with. I'm just in my nice quiet uh music room. So playing a gig where you have to sing and you want to kind of move around and express something cuz you're performing and you want to get I like to get right up on the microphone. I have a very low voice, as we've talked about, and it's, it can be hard to hear through the band. So I like to get right up on the microphone and have kind of a deadpan singing style. Uh, but I can't get right up on the microphone if it's going to shock me, and I can't move around if I have to be concerned about getting too close to the mic so and I don't want to get shocked on my lips I'm a brass player damn it you know so the set that night was a little bit doomed by this electrical problem I kind of had to stand stock still and sing my songs the set list was alright and uh, the band sounded good. I tried to uh, put together kind of a baseball themed set since there is one 
baseball song on the record. It's baseball season. And we are used to playing cover songs during our set uh, and sort of theming our sets a little bit. So I didn't, I didn't really have a baseball theme, but we did cover a wonderful song by a band called The Baseball Project that I will play for you now. Even though it's a little bit long, if you're a baseball fan, you will really appreciate this song. And if you're not a baseball fan, I'll set the scene for you a little bit. This is a song called Buckner's Bolero. The 1986 World Series featured the Red Sox and Mets. The Mets being uh, good for the first time in about a decade. And the Red Sox also being good for the first time in a decade, but looking to win their world first World Series in about 70 years. Uh, it was a World Series that went seven games, and the crucial moment happened in the sixth game at Shea Stadium here in Queens. When the Red Sox, on the verge of winning the championship, had the game just unravel on them. Many things happened leading up to the most famous moment of Mookie Wilson hitting a ground ball to first base and the ball going through Bill Buckner's legs, the first baseman of the Red Sox, allowing runs to score and the game to continue. The Mets won that game and wound up winning the seventh game and the series triumphant Mets history as when I grew up in Massachusetts I was four at the time of that World Series so it wasn't a part of my life then but it was recent history and just another another log on the fire of Red Sox torment to everybody and I'll tell you when the Red Sox won the World Series in 2004 their first World Series since 1918. The curse of the Bambino having been lifted. My dad, who is a state representative, he's a legislator in Massachusetts, uh, got to bring the World Series trophy around to a number of his towns that he represents because the Red Sox ownership had promised that they would send the trophy around to all the towns so that fans could see it and you know as a thank you to the fans so my dad got to travel around with the trophy bring it and so he represents all these small towns town of 900 people you know 600 of them would show up at the town hall for the three hours that the world series trophy was there and you know the tears in the rise this is the greatest thing that ever happened to our town you know just <laughs> just uh ludicrous devotion uh and and love for the red sox which is not really what i grew up with i didn't grow up as a, a heavy Sox fan i now root for the mets although i also root for the red sox anyways this song by the baseball project is one that is about this particular baseball event but also puts it through a lens of uh, 
a, a wider lens, you know, as as you'll see in the song. Uh, please enjoy the baseball player. If Bobby Ojeda hadn't raged at Sullivan and Yaki and hadn't been traded to the Mets for Calvin Giraldi, if oil can Boyd hadn't been such a And Jim Rice had twice taken an easy extra base. If the Red Sox had had a better playoff fourth starter, instead Nimber served up a big fat slider to Carter. What would Seaver have done? If not for his bum knee Would he have taken the ball And exacted revenge on his old team If Gooden had pitched like the real Dr. K Or Donnie That stuck with him till he couldn't take anymore And turned his own kitchen into a killing floor And John We 
As tough to walk as he was to strike out But there's only one play that ever gets talked about Now some kind of fame lies in being a scapegoat And if not that then you're just an historical footnote And your 22 years playing ball might be forgotten Maybe Bill Buckner was lucky His luck was so Another moment in the Escape from Society set that night that I want to point out was our performance of the song The Verge, which if you remember it from the record, is a kind of normal sounding song for three verses, and then the band suddenly disappears and is replaced by a scratchy extended technique, free improv kind of texture coming from violin, clarinet muted trombone and double bass uh i like that song that recording very much and we've had we've had different approaches to playing it live often i'll try to get some other people at the show maybe who are playing in it another band or who happen to be there with an instrument to be at the ready to play to freely improvise during that moment and the escape from society um, concept or theme of, of trying to weld a little bit of crazy music onto a frame of popular song uh is, is really in evidence in these moments. If I get a band to just play improv while we stand there having just played three verses of a very normal sounding song, uh, it's very effective. And so on this night, Ingrid Laubrock was the saxophonist in the first band, Jason Mears, another Cogglenocked connection, was the saxophonist in the third band. So three bands, there are three people who play saxophone, I had the the three saxophonists uh, on the night retreat to the back of the room. This is in a very large room where this can be done effectively. And as soon as we concluded the third verse, they snapped into an improvisation while the rest of us on stage stood totally still, silently, and the saxophone thing came from nothing and slowly grew and this interesting piece happened uh so i want to thank jason and ingrid for coming along with us and doing that i thought it was very cool and effective the show was at uh shapeshifter lab which everybody seems to agree is kind of a weird place i don't want to really rag on it but yeah i'll give it the yeah it's a yeah on the uh scale of of new york venues 
That would have done it for the month. That was on Monday the 28th. And then Tuesday afternoon, I was sitting at home planning my evening to go see the talking band, old friends and collaborators of mine on the Lower East Side. And I got a text message from good old Pete Manis asking if I would be free to come play with him that night at the Wayland on the Lower East Side at 9 o'clock, which is the time that the show would be getting out that I was at. Perfect, perfect, uh, you know, I don't know if I give myself, uh, you know, karma for that, but perfect uh, aligning of the stars. And uh, so the talking band show was cool, and then I went over and played blues with Pete and a just great rhythm section for two sets had an absolute ball um, and the song I'm going to play you out with is a Mose Allison tune that I heard on the radio last year and that was the first thing that that has that actually hipped me to Mose Allison who is totally awesome and uh Pete sings a little bit like Moe's, I think. Um, that's just my comparison between the, the two. And, and I, I wrote Pete earlier this year, and I was like, hey, man, are you a Moe's Allison fan by any chance? Because there's, there's like a little connection between you two guys. And this song, Going Up the City, like, I can just hear you singing it. And apparently he... Uh, he took that to heart because he learned the song and called it on this gig. And uh, it was a fun one to do. Here's Moses' version. That was April, y'all. Thanks for tuning in. If you're going up to the city You better have some if you're going up to the city, you better have some cash. With all the people in the city, they don't mess around with Thank <laughs> you.
Start messing around with dough. 